Good morning. If you're new around here, my name is Stephen. I'm the, I'm the pastor. And uh, let me address the first question on all of you new people's minds. No, I do not preach in a suit every single week. In fact, this is literally the first time in my life I've ever preached in a suit. And after the nine, somebody, <laughs> after the nine, somebody was like, how was it? I was like, I don't know. It's a little different preaching when you're worried about your pants ripping. Um, to which then somebody else said, what about all your skinny jeans, bro? And I said, well, you know, whatever. Okay. So let me explain a little bit, because uh, we're going to have another first here. Well, we just had it, I guess. I'm also going to be preaching out of the King James this, uh, this morning. And I know some of you out there, they're like, this is a real church. That's so good. Okay. So here's, here's why. Uh, let me explain a little bit. Um, and if I get a, a little emotional, please uh, bear with me. Uh, this, this last week, my grandfather died. And uh, this is my father's dad. And for those of you who have been around Redemption for a long time, uh, back to the movie theater, you would remember uh, him, he and, uh, uh, and my grandma. They'd be there every single week. And uh, after COVID, that, that kind of changed a little bit. So they haven't been uh, around here in the building as much. Uh, but he's a very, he was a very faithful online uh, watcher. And uh, a couple stories I want to share with my grandfather. First, I'm wearing a suit because uh, when I think of church, I think of my, my grandma and my grandpa. We went to church with them. Just about everywhere we went, they, they came. I don't know who was first, but uh, I have many, many memories of church on Sunday mornings being watching my grandpa and my grandma in full suit worship the Lord and uh, pass on a legacy of worshiping God. And, uh, and so that's why I'm wearing this today in honor of him. And when we, um, uh, when we got this building, and we were um, like uh, awarded the opportunity to buy it. There was another organization that was also trying to buy it. Uh, we, a couple of days later, we had a meeting, and it was online because it was in the middle of COVID. And so we had this online meeting, and everyone was watching online. And I said, hey, we, we get the opportunity to buy the building. We're going to move the church in there. First thing we got to do is uh, raise $100,000 so that we can rehab the entire building. And so I announced that to the church, and then the meeting ends, and I'm driving home. And as I'm driving home, I get a phone call, and it's Poppy. That's what we call them. And uh, Poppy calls, and he says, hey, son, pretty exciting news. I said, yeah, absolutely. We are so blessed, and who knows what God will want to do in that building. And he said, well, I want to go first. And I said, well, what do you mean, Pop? He said, we've got to raise 100 grand, don't we? And I said, yeah, we do. He said, well, why don't you come on over and pick up a check for $10,000? That was Poppy. And they were not a rich they're not a rich couple. They were a couple of their generation, hard workers, frugal, but generous. And they knew where their money was for, and that was for the kingdom of God. And so we started with that. Another story. And today, by the way, it's a, it's a crazy day uh, for our family because my dad is actually down in Arizona because my brother Josh, who moved down to Arizona six months ago to launch a church, uh, their first service is this morning. And so they're opening and launching their church. Yeah, which is really exciting. And I was actually just thinking about this between services. Um, there is no place in the world that my grandfather would have rather been today than watching my brother open up his church. And now he gets to watch. And that's pretty cool. And uh, when I first opened, um, I say I, I know we and all of this, but um, on, on the first day the, the, the church opened and I was going to be a lead pastor on my very first day, we had set up portable church that morning and I'd driven over to my grandparents' house to take a shower. And I, I take the shower and I'm heading back now to the, the building we were hosting church. And as I get out of the shower, uh, my grandfather met me there and he was holding this Bible. 
And this is the Bible that had sat on their table in their basement my entire childhood. And when I was the only one who was over at Nanny and Poppy's house, like just the only grandkid, I would go down to the basement as a seven, eight-year-old, and I would pick this Bible up, and I would practice preaching. And uh, my grandpa would come down when I was done, and he would say these words every time. Son, it's only preaching if it comes from the Word. And on the first day that we opened the church, my grandpa was waiting for me with this Bible, and he said, it's yours now. I want you to have it. He said, but I'm only giving it to you on one condition. Long after I'm gone, if you're preaching, you preach from the Word. Otherwise, it's not preaching. I said, Pop, that's all I got. He said, okay, it's yours. So I saw no fitting, better fitting way to honor him this morning than to literally preach uh, from the word of God that he passed down onto me. And so that's why we're in the King James this morning. That's why I'm wearing a suit. We'll be back in the ESV next week. I will wear some sweatpants joggers just to make some of you calm down a little bit. All right? It's kind of fun, though. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning, uh, we're in a series entitled Reformation, and what we've been talking about uh, is the desire that we have to see a movement of God, and uh, we're calling that a reformation because some things need to be reformed, and the first two weeks were just set up to the series, and we talked about how we got to get our salt back, how we got to be bold, holy, loving, and active. Last week, we talked about how we are in a battle, and today kicks off now 10 weeks of 10 steps on how to create a counterculture. And so each week, I'm going to give you a step. I'll be briefly interrupted on February 26th when Eric Metaxas is here joining us. I'll be inviting your friends. It's going to be a powerful morning. Uh, but other than that week, now for the next 10 weeks, we're going to walk through each 10 steps. And every week, we'll remind you uh, of the previous step. We'll have a nice list running here. And today, we get to step number one. And it is this. If you're looking for something deeply profound, uh, I'm sorry, but here it is. Live a godly life. Step one, live a godly life. Step one is about what's happening in here before we ever think about what's going on out there. And if you've ever studied revival or studied reformation, uh, it, it often happens, or not often, it almost always happens because God was doing something new in current believers. And so, uh, as we talk about uh, these 10 steps, the first one is that one. Step number one, live a godly life. And so this morning, I want to look at uh, what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in the Scripture, and it's really beautiful in the King James this morning, on how it is that we go about living this godly life. Now, uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, verse 13 starts like this. Wherefore, or in the ESV, therefore, and uh, if you've studied the Bible for a while or ever, uh, whenever there's a wherefore or a therefore, you have to stop and ask, you know, what's it there for? And so then you look back and say, well, what came first? And in 1 Peter 1 through 12, uh, we see that famous phrase about uh, being called to a living hope. Uh, we see this other line where it says, uh, the gospel, the thing the angels long to look into. Imagine that. The angels and all of the splendor of heaven and all the beauty of what they've seen. There's something that they always wanted to look into for all uh, of eternity prior to Christ, and it was the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. And so then they got to see all of that unfold, and we have that gospel now. 
And Peter says, because of the beauty of the gospel, uh, because the gospel has now been poured out and because you have been called to a living hope, now wherefore, because of that, he's going to encourage us in these things. And the first thing he's going to say is this, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. What a great phrase in the King James. In other words, he's saying, get your mind ready for battle. It is going to be a fight, and you have to be mentally strong in order to win it. You, you need to have your mind properly rooted and grounded in solid doctrine. You need to make sure you're listening to the right voices and pushing out the wrong voices. You need to make sure that there's a proper perspective. Some of you who are familiar with the scriptures, when you hear this verse, maybe you go back to Romans chapter 12, which says that you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, now that we are in Christ, we think differently than we used to think. Paul helps us understand it in Philippians 4.8 when he says, think about that which is lovely, good, true, pure, and beautiful. Get your mind ready for the battle. And so this morning, friends, we got to get our mind ready to live a godly life. He says, be sober. And what he's talking about there and being sober is this. He's saying, don't be controlled um, uh, by the emotions of the day. Don't be controlled by the craziness of your culture. Don't let the pendulum of truth keep swinging back and forth. Instead, be sober-minded. Be controlled in your thinking. Control what comes in. Control what goes out that dictates your behavior. Be sober. Be calm in mind. And how do we do that? By keeping our eyes fixed on that which is true. He says, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And whatever we believe, right, whatever you might believe about end of days, there's one thing we all agree on, isn't there? And that is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back for his church. So he says, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you when Christ returns. And so uh, I'm saying all of this as a setup. Peter is going to set up what he's about to say, and he's going to root it in the beauty of the gospel, and he's going to root it in the hope that we have in the return of Christ and uh, the, 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 the future effect of our full salvation. And so he's saying, because of that, now start to think. And now Peter's going to give two instructions this morning uh, that we're going to look at uh, that I want to leave you with this morning on living a godly life. He, he's going to say this verse in verse 14, as obedient children. Notice he does not say, as rebellious teenagers, as reckless toddlers. No, no, no. As obedient children. The assumption that Peter is making is this, that when you and I step into Christ, and when we step into that, that new relationship with Christ, uh, that our desire now, the desire of our heart is now to be an obedient child, obedient to our heavenly Father. Like we've been talking about all year, what does obedience look like? Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it that you would obey and submit to the entirety of the word of God. He says, as obedient children. Are you an obedient child this morning? Are you in a reckless teenage angst? Are you an obedient child this morning? Or are you being a fussy toddler when it comes to the things of God? What's the difference often, by the way? The fussy toddler doesn't really know everything, right? But just acts according to their own whims and feelings. 
The rebellious teenager knows what is right and wrong, but chooses not to submit to the father. Peter's instruction here is to be an obedient child. He goes on to explain what that would look like or how that might come about by giving both a negative and a positive. The negative is this. He says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. The term here, fashion, in the ESV is conform or form. In other words, he's saying, do not be formed uh, to the old standard. Do not be formed to the standard of your prior way of life. In other words, uh, or instead, he's going to go on, he's going to say, be holy as I am holy. Let me read the positive affirmation. He's saying this, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or in all manner of living, or in the ESV, in all of your conduct. To live a godly life, the first instruction here that Peter is saying is this, be holy in all of your conduct, be holy in every part of your life, and part of holiness then is not fashioning or forming yourself by your, um, by your former way of life, that you no longer act like that, you're no longer formed to that standard, or to follow uh, this word, you're no longer fashioned like that, right? We see this word fashioned, right? And one thing that we might think of is like our fashion, what we wear, right? And uh, Lindsay and I, we were in Idaho this last week. And uh, when we were out in the small town in Idaho, uh, never before in our lives have we been in a town where it was so obvious who was the Christ followers and who weren't. This was like a salty group of people in the right way. And uh, you could pick mine, like, that follower Chris, not follower Chris, follower Chris. Not, like, and, and it wasn't just the clothing, it was the, it was the joy, it was the spirit. It was actually a very beautiful thing to see. And uh, you could walk into a business and just sense God's presence in there. Like, wow, this, this, somebody, and then later on we'd ask somebody, and they go, oh yeah, somebody from the church owns that business. It's like, wow, how beautiful. Well, well, what was going on there? Well, they were no longer being fashioned by their old things. They're no longer wearing their old clothing they were being fashioned into something new. Maybe another way to look at this is um, when I got married, my fashion changed. Anyone else? In fact, if you just looked at all my old pictures on Facebook and didn't have a date on them, you, you could tell that was a pre-Lindsay wardrobe. That was a post-Lindsay wardrobe. I don't wear what I used to wear, mostly because it's all been put in the trash. But other than that, You just dress differently. Friend, are you dressed differently now because of Christ? Have you thrown away the old wardrobe? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives a little bit of a list here in helping us understand this. And what he's saying is this, don't wear these clothes anymore. He says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, be not deceived. In other words, don't trick yourself into thinking that you can walk in your sin without any conviction and call yourself an obedient child of God. You can't. 
He's saying, know ye that not the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy. Then he goes on to say this, neither fornicators. Now I'm going to have to explain some of these words, right, in the ESV. Neither fornicators, so there he's just talking about sexual immorality as described in the scriptures, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, right, in the ESV, uh, that's making a reference to um, either or both homosexuality or um, basically men not acting like men, okay, and making reference to either one of these, thus, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying this, sin is a big deal, and it stops you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And so he's saying what? Repent, repent. Run away from it. Now, as I get into this sermon this morning, some of you are going to go, but Stephen, what about grace? Well, let me tell you about the beauty of grace. Paul explains this to us in, uh, uh, in Romans 5 through 7 really clearly. And here's what we learn about it, that grace is this. Grace is the idea and the beautiful idea that you and I rebel against God's perfect and holy standard, uh, that we uh, rebel against it, uh, that we disregard it, uh, that the depravity of our hearts chooses sin instead of him over and over and over again. Grace then is that us in our utter helplessness and rebellion against God, he still loves us and embraces us and brings us back and calls us holy because of Christ. That is grace. And what that grace is supposed to do is not then give us a license to keep on doing what we used to do. That grace is supposed to now compel a freedom in us to never return to the sin of our past. That's grace. And so this morning, if you want to use your grace as a license to sin, you stand opposed to the way of God. Grace is not a freedom to sin. It is a freedom to conquer sin and to walk in new holiness. He says it this way, and such were some of you. Paul, he's got these guys in mind. He's like, you were that one, you were that one, you were that one, you were that one. Such were some of you, past tense, because you and I are no longer defined by the sin of our past. You were that. You were that. And uh, around here, we love the phrase, everyone's invited to experience redemption, but then to live in freedom, right? You were this thing. And some of us, we can think through things that used to define us, sins that used to control us, uh, uh, sins that we used to think, I would never get over that. But then when the gospel breaks in, that which used to define you, you are now free from. And that's actually the greatest level of freedom. That thing no longer trips you up. It no longer uh, spits you back out. You no longer have to return to it. You can completely walk. As Paul says in uh, Philippians, I press on. I forget what lies behind. And I press on to that which is new, to Christ. I'm away from it. He says, some, and such were some of you. But now what? <laughs> he says, now you are washed. Washed. Cleansed. Woo! He's making a reference here a little bit to baptism. And uh, but I'll get this question every once in a while. Somebody will say to me, like, hey, would you ever baptize a, um, I mean, honestly, the question is mostly like, would you ever baptize a gay person? Would you ever baptize somebody caught up in this sin? Somebody caught up in that sin? Somebody caught up in this sin? And my answer is always the same. Absolutely if they understand that in baptism, what they're saying is, I am dying to sin in that, and I'm coming out on the other side, and I'm not going back. If that's what you mean, I'll baptize you. Otherwise, you don't want baptized. You just want to back, and I don't bathe people. 
Go hire somebody else. No, to be baptized is to be washed anew. To, to be baptized, uh, I'm saying the symbolism here. To be baptized is you're saying, I am leaving all of that behind. And like Christ rose from the grave, I'm coming out new. And why would I run back or hold on to the old me when Jesus has given a new me? Friend, are you walking in your new me? You were those things. You don't have to be them anymore. You've been washed. Ye are sanctified. You are growing up in Christ. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So back to 1 Peter. Be holy in all of your conduct. All of your, how, how pervasive, how invasive is this, Stephen? Oh, very. All of your conduct. All of your speaking. All of your thinking. Be holy in your sexuality. Be holy with your money. Be holy with your patterns. Be holy as it relates to envy and greed and jealousy and pride. Be holy in all of it. Well, Stephen, what standard do I follow for holiness? What does the verse say? Be holy as what? As I am holy, saith the Lord. That standard. Not your own standard. Not a shifting standard. Not a cultural standard. God's standard. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. You can't. He can through you. He can through you. And friends, before we rant or rave about what is going on out there, we have to deal with what is in here. We have to deal with what is in here. Holiness. Holiness. We used to sing in a youth group all the time, right? Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. Do you need to repent of something this morning? I'm not talking about dragging up something from your past that you've already dealt with, by the way. Jesus has done, he's done with that. If you've done with it properly, Jesus has done with it. What I'm telling you, is there something right now? Is there something right now that you need to repent of, that you need to leave behind? Something right here, something that is present, that is pushing holiness out, that is still the old clothes and not the new clothes. Throw them in the trash. Leave it at the altar. Today's the day. Walk away from it. Be set free by the power of the gospel. Ye are sanctified and ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Be holy as he is holy. This is Peter's first instruction to the group of people responding to the gospel. Be holy in all of your conduct. And if you're wondering, like, well, Stephen, how, how do I go about doing that? Well, repentance is typically step one, just laying it out. The, the, the second step then is just embracing the power of the Holy Spirit and, uh, uh, and then engaging in the word of God, which will teach you what holiness looks like. And so that's why we read. That's why we get in Bible studies. That's why we do these types of things. Now, as uh, Peter continues in verse 17, he says this. He says, and if ye call on the Father... In other words, like if you, if you call yourself a Christ follower, if ye call on the Father, get this line, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. In the ESV, uh, it uses this phrase, conduct yourself with fear. Conduct yourself with fear. 
And part of, I think, the reason that we don't know Reformation or we don't know revival is because we also do not know how to conduct ourselves with fear in the church anymore. To conduct ourselves with fear uh, in, in, the, in the biblical sense, the term fear here means respect or reverence of God. Reverence to God the Father. And in an era of like reckless love and daddy God, right, we have lost what it looks like to properly respect and to revere the Heavenly Father. What it looks like to, to see the great standard, right? To see the one who is so different than us. He says, and if you call on the Father who with respect of persons judges according to every man's work. Three things in this, by the way, that I think are super countercultural. If we are going to conduct ourselves in fear, we need to learn these three things. And here's the first one. And I'm sorry if this messes with your modern sensitivities. You are not special. You're not and it does not mean that God doesn't love you. Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings over us with joyful songs. It doesn't mean that God is not near you. He is close and he is particularly close to the brokenhearted. But here it says this, without respect of persons. In other words, you are not special. Let me help you understand what I mean by that. What he's saying is this, that you and God don't have some kind of special deal worked out when it comes to sin. Oh, God knows my heart. He knows my heart. And, and what we mean when we say that is, and, and so because he knows my heart, I'm engaging in this sin, and it's okay. God and I, we kind of talked about it, and he told me in this certain circumstance, because I have this special knowledge of him um, outside of his word, that it's okay. You are not special. You don't get to change God's word and the standard of God's word because you feel something in your heart. What you're feeling in your heart is your rebellion against his standard. That's what you're feeling. That is not something you celebrate and champion. That is something you repent of and change. God's standard is not something that we get to fashion after ourselves. It's not something that we get to make up. It's something that we get to learn. It's something that when we step into Christ, the Holy Spirit implants it into us uh, in this beautiful uh, moment where like, we step in and the Holy Spirit reminds us of what Christ has taught and, and then Christ was the fulfillment of the law. And so it's like the law breaks inside of us, right? Um, but, but we don't get to make the standard what we want. In fact, let me give you five things here real quick that will never change God's standard. The first thing is culture. Culture will never change God's standard. We don't get to look in and say, oh, well, in that culture, that is acceptable. If the that is a sin in the Bible, then the that is a sin in that culture or this culture or any culture. The Bible invades every culture. In fact, part of the ways we know that the Bible is what it is, is that in different cultures, we'll um, fight against different parts of the scriptures. Why? Because the, the, the scriptures are universal and cultural, culture will, will naturally become narrow. Culture won't change it. Second thing that won't change it, time. Time. Some of us think we can like run the clock out on God. And we're like engaging in a sin and we're like, I'm just going to keep going until either the conviction goes away or until I feel like God and I arrive at a special arrangement for our sin. And you can't run the clock out on God. 
The standard's not going to change. It's not going to change. Just because you're in this sin longer doesn't make it any less of a sin. All it does is it nulls your conscience to it. Nulls your conscience to it. And you drift off into sleep. Now you're sleeping in your sin. Second, or third thing, I guess. Actually, I'll couple all three of these things together. And again, warning to the modern sensitivity. Here are three things that do not change God's standard. Your feelings, your circumstances, and your hearts. Those three things do not change God's standard. Your feelings. Well, Stephen, it felt like it was okay. Great. Still sinful. In fact, I don't care what you felt when you did it. If it was wrong, it was wrong. Your feelings don't provide a freedom for you to change God's standard. That's why we sing a song around here called Christ Be Magnified where it says, I won't be formed by feelings. I will be fashioned instead by God's standard. Your circumstances don't change God's standard. Well, it was in a really rough season, and, uh, and there was this thing that was going on, and, uh, and it was really hard, and because of that, then I engaged in this sin because uh, the, the sin helped, or, uh, or because I was so worried about that thing, I just, you know, I just started sin. No, no, circumstances never provide an excuse for sin. And even your hurts, and maybe you're thinking, Stephen, um, you're not being very sympathetic, and you're not being very empathetic. No, no. I can be very sympathetic. I can be very empathetic. I just don't want to hear your pathetic excuses. Sympathy and empathy. Sympathy and true sympathy and true empathy are never about creating license to sin. They're about loving somebody, being close to somebody, and caring somebody, and feeling the pain of somebody else. But sin is not going to make the situation better. It'll only make it worse. It's possible this morning that when I say you need to conduct yourself in a holy fear, you need to be holy in all that you're holy, that right now what is blinding you from being able to see inside is a feeling, a circumstance, or a hurt. And maybe you need to ask God, help me to peer through that layer that has been um, thrown over so that I might see what might need changed in me to conduct yourself again in fear. If you want some biblical examples of this, by the way, just go home and read the book of Job. Even prior to this moment, earlier in 1 Peter, he talks about the, 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 the trials, the difficulties, the circumstances, the hurts, the moments when we don't feel it, how those are testing moments for us. And in those moments, it actually reveals what's really going on inside. In fact, maybe one of the most gracious things that God does in our life is there's different trials that we face, whatever they might be. And what they do is they reveal either the genuineness of our faith, or maybe they reveal the lack of genuineness in our faith, which is then something that is used to pull us back to true repentance and to build a true faith. And again, I'm not judging anything up in your past. If it has been properly dealt with, please hear me out. But anything that has not been dealt with or anything that you're in right now, hear these words. Hear these words. Conduct yourself with fear. The second thing that this is teaching us is this, that there is a judge. We live in an era where we want to be judged. We, we want to be able to make our own decision. Uh, it's like the last verse in the book of Judges in the Old Testament when it says that each person did what was right in his or her own eyes. Now, what this text is teaching us is that there is a judge and you are not it. 
You are not the one who gets to decide what is right and wrong. God has already decided it, and there is a level of judgment that is going on. There is, of course, eternal judgment, and eternal judgment is um, us bearing the full weight of our sin if we never embrace the work that Christ did on the cross. And so we now have to carry the penalty of our sin, which leads to eternal damnation and separation from God in hell. That's one judgment, and all men, uh, all of humanity will stand before the throne of God on judgment day, and that will be the only question. Did you embrace Christ, and did you embrace Christ's work for you on the cross? That's the only thing that will separate the two. Did you embrace Christ? Has he covered it, or has he not? But what this text also seems to be indicating is that there is some level of God still looking in to the Christian and saying, hey, how are you living? How are you living? And, and, uh, and God looking in and looking down and saying, have you embraced grace? And has grace embraced you in such a way that it is now compelling you to walk in a holy reverent fear of the God of the universe and also to walk and be holy as he is holy? Or have you forsaken that and run away from it? So friend, there is a standard and a judge. And it's not you, it's him. Are you submitted to it? The third thing this teaches us is this. He says, past the time of your, uh, right before that, he says, according to every man's work. What's he saying here? He's saying, you got to take personal responsibility. You take personal responsibility for your Christian life. You are not a victim. It's not society's fault. It's not his fault. It's not hers fault, her fault. It's not their fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your ex's fault. No, no, no. You take personal responsibility for your sin. We see this with David. When he says, I and I alone have sinned against you and you alone. Lord, own up to your own sin. And, and, and own up to it, by the way, because we live in a culture that wants to use fake words instead of sin. We want to use words like sick or unhealthy, habit, pattern, or addiction. Sin, sin, sin is the problem. They might lead to some of those things on the surface, but if we only deal with surface issues, then we'll only have surface solutions. So let's get to the bottom. And what is at the heart? A rebellious heart, a sinful heart. Conduct yourself with fear, he says. Take personal responsibility. Now maybe you're wondering, okay, Peter's laid it out there. Where's the hope, Stephen? Ah, look where he goes in verse 19 and verse 20. Peter gives us this little text, and he says, because of the gospel, be holy. Because of the gospel, conduct yourself in fear. Live a godly life. And after he lays out what that ought to look like, this is what he then says. He says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed, he's going to go in and he's going to talk about our redemption. Right here, we say everyone's invited to experience redemption, and we exist to help people experience redemption and then live in freedom. 
And Peter has just explained how we live in freedom, but now he's bringing us back to that redemption moment. He's saying, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. Now, the idea of redemption, right, is that a price has been paid for you, is that you were indebted and there was a price that you could not pay for your liberation and your freedom. And so instead then of being free, you are going to be enslaved. And however it is that you want to think about that, I was reminded recently of the metaphor of an individual standing before a judge and, uh, and, and all of the list of their punishments are up there and the judge rules and the judge says, hey, you are sentenced now to life in prison because of your sin and uh, because you know you disobeyed the law and then the, the, the individual sentence now is moved down into uh, the dark prison and they're walking in and they're going to be placed in a cell that is too short for them to stand, right, and not long enough for them to lay down and that's going to be their existence and we forget sometimes what our spiritual existence was, what the hopelessness of our existence was, and we think at times to be set free then was an inexpensive or a cheap trick in order for us to be free. But Peter is saying, no, your redemption was not a cheap trick. Your redemption was not a low cost. He says, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Your redemption price was so high. Why do we conduct ourselves in fear? Why are we holy as he is holy? Because we see what it cost that we might be set free from our enslavement. What was it? The precious blood of Jesus. So first he reminds us of the cost of our redemption. The second thing he does is he tells us of the beauty of the gospel. Jesus who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In other words, Christ, Christ, who was here at the beginning, but then came down to earth, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. The beauty of the gospel being what? that God sent his only son, knew, knowing what was awaiting him, picking up on the metaphor from earlier, the judge sentences the guilty person, you, down to the imprisonment, into the cell where you will be forgotten. And right before you get down there, the judge's son stands up and says, I'll go down there instead. And you walk in your freedom. That's the beauty of the gospel. And he's saying, now as you remember your redemption moment and as you gaze at the beauty of the gospel, do what? Be holy as he is holy. Conduct yourself in a holy reverence to that God, the one who sent his son for you. On your way in today, you got a communion cup. Go ahead and pull it out. You can go ahead and open it up. In closing, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, where Paul reminds the church to take communion when they gather. At the same time, you're, 
going to end up taking communion. Lindsay's going to play a song that you can listen to. Friend, this is step number one of what's going to end up being a 10-week process. Hopefully that is just the beginning of what God would want to do. And there's no better place for us to start than for each of us to take a moment today and to let the Holy Spirit reveal what might need changed in us first. From the text, Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so perhaps you ask this morning, well, what does it look like? Because I don't want to eat it in an unworthy manner. And oftentimes this passage is used as a reason people go back and say, I don't really know if I want to take communion. But realize that in the text, he says, examine yourself and then go ahead and partake. Because what's happening in the moment of the examination is you are opening your heart up to the Lord. And you're saying, I am letting you come in right now and tell me what needs to be changed. But I guess I will tell you this morning, if you can't say that with a sincere heart, then maybe don't take this morning. But if you can say, God, you get to speak in and you get to change me. I'm tired of being formed by my old fashions. I'm, I'm tired of running back to those things. I want to walk in the newness of life that you have granted me. I want to be free and liberated to run after you. Then take this morning after examination and walk in the freedom that he has granted you. See, this text, weighty. Yes. Both the First Corinthians passage I just read, the one I read earlier, and the First Peter passage, all weighty texts. But understand that at the end and at the beginning of each and every one of these texts is the freedom of new life. That, that the Holy Spirit through the writing of these is saying, yes, stop, examine, look inside. Oh, but when the Holy Spirit does his work then, walk in the freedom that you have been granted. And so friends, I want to give you a moment to do that today. So during this last song, partake of communion on your own and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let me pray. Father, we stand before you desiring to be holy as you are holy. And if we have forgotten how to conduct ourselves in fear, teach us how to do it. And I pray that you would form each and every one of us to your standard. 
And I pray that you would break out in us a longing and a desire for holiness, revealing to us where it is no longer present, forming it where it needs to emerge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.